the books of First and Second Peter. Uh, now, Second Peter was written to the same audience that First Peter was. It was just Jewish uh, believers who had been scattered throughout Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. Uh, and Second Peter was written, and this is important, it was written between 65 and 68 A.D., and that would have been right before Peter's death, which will help us understand kind of a lot of the things that he wrote in Second Peter. Now, the main theme of 1 Peter, if you'll remember, was to prepare people how to stand strong during persecution and how to face persecution. And 2 Peter is still about preparing, but it's about preparing to face false teachers because there are so many false teachers there and that were just uh, trying to completely spoil the message of God. And so that, that's what he was trying to teach them to deal with. Uh, specifically, he was really warning them against not just their theology, but not to adapt to their lifestyles, uh, these false teachers. Now, before I explain the main theme uh, of today's message, I wanted to ask a few questions. I know they might sound strange, but how many of you are decent to good planners, meaning that you do your best to keep your ducks in a row? Raise your hand. Okay. How many of you are schedulers, people who are obsessed with schedules and lists? Raise your hand. Okay. <laughs> these are generally the kinds of people who are good at scheduling and keeping appointments. Okay. How many of you are obsessive preppers? And by that, <laughs> there we go. By that, I mean if you're at Costco and peanut butter's on sale, you'll buy 10 jars of it, even if you don't think you'll ever eat it. You might be those type of people. Okay. Now, for those of you who are planners, how many of you have included dying in your life plans? Right? Now, uh, I know that sounds pretty harsh, but those of you who like schedules and lists, is death on your list of things to come? Right? This is about perspective. Right? Because everybody has an appointment we're going to keep. Everyone who's born dies. Now, those who are obsessive preppers, have you prepared to stand before God? You see, somehow we've tried to kind of phase death out of our minds, which is very unhealthy, and we'll talk about that as we go through this. Uh, but this may seem depressing, but there's one inescapable fact, and that fact is if, if you're alive, you're going to die. It's, <laughs> you guys are all going, thanks, Pastor Chris. Thanks for lifting me up this morning. But you're going to die. I mean, believers need to realize that the Word of God specifically prepares us for life, but it also specifically prepares us for death, right? Now, if there's a couple things. I mean, first of all, obviously, it teaches us how to have eternal life. I mean, everybody knows how the Bible teaches us that by faith alone and Christ alone, uh, we have eternal life. But it also teaches us how to live a godly and confident and peaceful life in Christ while we're here on this earth. But it goes beyond that, okay? It also teaches us how to face death with this godly and, and peaceful uh, and confident uh, attitude in Christ. It teaches us how to do that. Right now, so the Bible teaches us to live in a way that not only glorifies God in our life, but glorifies God in our death. So that's very important that you understand that. Now, there was a man one time who his wife passed away. Five years she'd been gone. The roughest five years of his life. Soon after the five years came up, he passed away and he met her in heaven. But she'd been there five years. I mean, she knew the lay of the land, right? She was like, leading him around and talking to him and he stopped her and he had a real concerned look on his face. He said, um, you know, I would have been here a lot sooner if you hadn't made me eat all that healthy stuff. <laughs> See, so anybody that picks on me for what I eat, that's just because I'm preparing to die. I'm good. Right? No, but anyway, uh, in today's text, Peter's going to discuss two important things that every believer needs to know. So let's look at the main text, and we'll break it down here in a minute. 2 Peter 1.12, uh, actually through 15, says, For this reason... I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. Yes, I think it is right, as long as I am in this tent, you might want to underscore that, to stir you up by reminding you, 
knowing that shortly I must put off my tent, just as our Lord Jesus Christ has showed me. Uh, moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. Now, we'll look at all that in a little bit. But he wanted his readers to know how to, how to live and how to die with the peace and confidence that's only found in Christ. See, Peter was confident and faithful that God wasn't just someone you could depend on here. He was someone you could depend on in the next life. That relationship is eternal. It goes on forever and ever. And whether alive or dead, you know you're going to be with Christ. And Peter was emboldened by that because he served Jesus after his crucifixion boldly. And everybody thinks of all the things he did wrong before that. You know what? Everybody has a past. Get over it. Because after that, he was a faithful servant. Even when his life was in peril, he boldly served God. Because he knew that dead or alive, he already had the victory. I mean, he can't lose, and he had, that's a great attitude to have. So I titled this message, How to Live and Die with Confidence. Uh, but before I break down verses 12 through 15, there's a story I want to illustrate with you, if I can get through it without getting emotional, uh, that perfectly kind of illustrates what Peter's trying to teach here. So those of you who are familiar with the church uh, and the church history have heard of a man named Polycarp. I'm sure. Raise your hand if you've heard of Polycarp. Okay, well, you're gonna, all right? So he was a believer. He became a believer when he was very young in his life, and he eventually, eventually became a disciple of the Apostle John's. So he was being mentored by the Apostle John. When he was 86 years old, Polycarp was martyred for his faith by the Romans. Now, not only was he martyred, but he was martyred in the most cruel of ways, he was burned alive at the stake. Burned alive at the stake. Uh, and Polycarp was actually the first recorded martyr in post-New Testament church history. But I'm sharing this because Polycarp perfectly illustrated what Peter's going to discuss. So let's take a look at this. Uh, he just, this is how a believer can live and die and glorify God. So I just want you to pay attention. He had this completely, completely fearless outlook that I, when I read this, not only do I get a little emotional, but I, I feel kind of ashamed of myself that I don't have that kind of passion. Because in his life, he lived this fearless life of faith and dedication to Jesus and the gospel, knowing it could get him killed, and he didn't care. He was that committed, and it was for that reason, because he was so bold, that the Romans wanted to arrest him and kill him. Because he would not shut up, no matter how much he was warned. He knew he was here to share the gospel, and if they killed him, so what? That was his mentality. I love that. So when the Romans were coming to arrest him, he and his friends started praying. And sometime during that prayer time, Polycarp had some, cord, some kind of vision, and, and no one really knows what he saw or what he heard in that vision, but when that vision was over, he made one simple statement. He said, I now understand that I must be burned alive. I mean, can you imagine what his friends are thinking? Like, uh, whoa, we're praying over here, and you're talking about, you know, being burned alive, but that was the statement that he made. And when the soldiers arrived, he opened the door, and he said, God's will be done when they opened the door. Most people would open the door and run, but he says, God's will be done. And once he was arrested, they basically wanted him to denounce this Jesus and, and pledge, their pledge his allegiance uh, to Caesar. And they were, I mean, really putting it on thick. And here's how he responded. I'm going to try to read this without getting emotional. He said, 80 and six years I have served Christ, nor has he ever done me any harm. How then could I blaspheme my king who saved me? I bless thee for deeming me worthy of this day and this hour, that I may be among thy martyrs and drink of the cup of my Lord Jesus Christ. Whew. Can you imagine? I mean, that is what he said. Then that infuriated the Romans. 
hearing that he was that bold infuriated him. They, they worked on fear. They were used to dominating people by fear. So that just made them intensify their interrogation. They thought, well, maybe if we threaten him with something, he'll, you know, he'll do what we ask. So next, the Romans threatened with burning him alive. They said, either do it or we're going to burn you alive. And he simply replied, while the proconsul's fire lasts but a little while, the fires of judgment reserved for the ungodly cannot be quenched. Is it just me or is this guy? <laughs> I mean, he is not backing off one bit. They threaten with fire, and he says, yeah, it only lasts so long. What you got coming for you is going to last a lot longer than that. I mean, he was bold. So when the soldiers grabbed him, they were going to nail him to a stake so that he wouldn't run when he was lit on fire. Right? And all this is history. I mean, I'm not making this up. But when they grabbed him to, to nail him to that, to that, that spike or, that, or whatever you call it, that stake in the ground, here's what he said. He said, leave me as I am, for he who grants me to endure the fire will enable me also to remain on the pyre unmoved without the security you desire from the nails. So basically he said, you don't have to nail me to that. I'm not running. I'm not going to run. I'm not going to move. The same one that makes me boldly face this fire will keep me still through that fire. So no, don't, don't nail anything through my hands. Just, just do what you got to do. And then he literally said, this is historically literal. He said, but why do you delay? Come, do what you will. So he's saying, oh, that's the best you got? You're going to burn me at the stake if I don't renounce Christ and pledge my allegiance to Caesar. Well, let's get it on then. Get the matches out. Let's get started. That's basically what he was saying, right? Now, this just blows me away because it says that history teaches that he stood there praying out loud until the fire consumed him and he was dead. He was praying while he was on fire. He wasn't screaming, wasn't calling out for help. He was praying to God while being on fire all the way up until his death. Now, the person who was recording these events, the one who kind of penned to some of these historical events, said, not as burning flesh, but as bread baking or as gold and silver refined in a furnace. That's how he described Polycarp's death. And I know, I know that's a lot, but I shared this because this might help you kind of grasp what Peter's trying to tell his readers in verses 12 through 15. He wants them to learn how to live and die right, how to live and die godly. So let's jump into today's text, 2 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 12. It says, For this reason I will not be negligent to remind you always of the things, uh, though, I'm sorry, of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. So when Peter said, for this reason, he was referring back to verses 10 and 11. We talked about that last week. Let's jump back there. Second Peter, it should be 1, 10 and 11. It says, therefore, brethren, be uh, even more diligent to make your call and election sure, for if you do these things, you'll never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So, Peter said he wanted to remind them of something, and he, was, he, he wasn't reminding them because he thought they were dumb or uninformed or forgotten it. He was just reminding them because he knows that when you reflect on the promises of God when you're in a difficult situation, it rises the level of peace and confidence in that situation. Sometimes we need to have the perspective of it's not that bad. You know, it, it, when you look at the whole you know, scope of things, is what you're going through really that bad? Because think of what Jesus went through to get you your eternal life. Think what he's promised you if you're faithful to him. So Peter thought if they just reflect on these promises, it'll give them the peace and confidence they need. And they needed peace and confidence if they were going to face these false teachers because they were bold. 
So there were two important things that Peter taught his readers uh, to reflect in verses 10 and 11. First, he said he wanted them to remember their identity in Christ and what purpose he had for them. It's basically what he was saying. And this is referring to that statement in verse 10. It said, make their calling and God's choosing of them sure. When he said that in verse 10. And that's so important that believers reflect on God's love and purpose for them. Because sometimes I think we forget that God loves us and every one of us was made on purpose for a purpose. All of us. None of us are here by mistake. None of us have nothing to do. Everyone has a purpose, right? And when we realize that, it also makes us realize how valuable we are and how much we're loved by our creator. And that's why Peter wanted them to look at that. But second, he taught them how embracing their identity and purpose would affect their lives. Because being aware of, of who you are in Christ and the purpose you have in Christ keeps us confident and focused. That's why I tell people all the time, if you don't know what you're supposed to do, don't rest until you find out. Pray, seek, do... Try different things. See what it is God has for you to do. Because when you are doing what God has called you to do, you get more confident and more focused. And if you don't have it, sometimes you just lose your way. And here's the thing. Everyone who is confident and focused and keeps confident and focused, they're going to be a force for Christ. They're going to be a huge asset for him eventually. And I think sometimes we forget that. Now, in verse 13, Peter even said that he hoped that reminding of this would pump them up, basically. Look at this, verse 13 again. He says, yes, I think it's right, I think it is right, as long as I am in this tent, again, underscore that, to stir you up by reminding you. Okay, this was Peter's equivalent of a pregame hype speech. You ever see those pregame hype speeches in football? They always record them and stuff like that, and in basketball. This is kind of his version of that. He was telling them something like, you know, listen, your faith is a powerful weapon against the enemy. Now get out there and use it. Stop moping around and talking about how rough it is. Get out there and use it. I'm here to stir you up as long as I'm in this tent. Now, at times, all believers can get tired in the faith, but not necessarily of the faith. Okay, has anybody here ever found themselves just tired in the faith? Anybody know what I'm talking about? It doesn't mean you don't want to be a Christian anymore. It just means that you find yourself, the frustration, you know, the world coming at you, the, the stuff you're having to put up with, sometimes it just takes our thunder a little bit, and we get a little tired in the faith. That means we get discouraged and we start feeling like maybe we're not that valuable or we've lost our way. And that's why it's so important that we have someone in our lives like Peter. Someone who will encourage us to stay the course, right? That it's going to be worth it. One of the things people are not good at is surrounding themselves with the right people. Okay, it's very important you understand this. Now, I'm not one of those preachers that tells you, you know, stay away from the world, don't have anything to do with the world, don't be friends with the world, don't hang out with the world. Listen, if we're supposed to reach the world we kind of got to hang out with them and talk to them and be around them, right? That's not what I'm saying. But you should have a core group of people around you who believe like you do, who when they see you struggling says, pick yourself up, man. Come on. It's worth it. You're going to make it here. Get up. Don't give in to that discouragement. People need someone like Peter in their life, and people need to, you know, d want to be like Peter, want to be encouragers who strengthen other believers. Because Peter knew from experience, and, I mean, he had the experience. That living a life of faith in a hostile world is not easy and never gets easier. It just never gets easier. I don't know if you guys have noticed this now, but the way the world's going now, I, I feel like a foreigner here. Anybody else starting to feel that way? I mean, things have changed so much, and love has gone cold in most people's hearts. And sometimes I get up and I understand what the Bible meant when he said that we were aliens in a foreign land, because I feel like it. I, I just don't feel like I belong sometimes. Yeah, I mean, it's difficult. And Peter said, hey, it's not going to get any easier, right? So he knew that the confidence they would get from their faith and being encouraged would empower them to face anything. And that's why it's so important he kept encouraging them. 
Now, believers still struggle with being discouraged and distracted by the world today. Because, uh, as I'm sure you've all noticed, have you noticed the world is morally and spiritually shifted? It's not slightly went off course. It has shifted dramatically. And sometimes I sit and I can't imagine how we allowed this to happen, but that's another sermon. But to most, the standard for what's right and wrong today is no longer God or God's word. There was a time when it used to be God's word, but it's not now. Because in the name of social and political correctness, right and wrong are now considered merely subjective. Do what's right to you. Do what's right to you. But there is no right and wrong. That's, that's out there right now. I mean, the world says that we each get to, cho- to choose what's right and wrong to us. Which I've never understood. If that's true, then how can anybody go to jail? You know what I mean? How do you put anybody in jail if you say that everyone's rights and wrongs are subjective? If morality is subjective, I understand that, that line of reasoning. But the psalmist talked about how dangerous it was for believers, or anybody for that matter, to choose their rights and wrongs. Look at this, Proverbs 14, 12. It says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of what? Death. He's saying, sure, you can, you can have your own rights and wrongs. Yeah, you can do what seems right to you. But if it's not what seems right to God, it just ends in death. But you have that right. Okay, you know, one undeniable fact is spiritual moral absolutes turn to chaos if there's no standard behind them. There has to be a standard behind the spiritual and the moral absolutes that we hear about. See, this country was, was founded on Christian principles and viewed God as the standard. Now, people argue with me about that all the time. Oh, that wasn't the standard, blah, 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 and all this other stuff. Listen, I didn't say this world was formed by perfect men who never did anything wrong. Some of those guys are real jerks. I'm not going to lie. Some of them were pigs. But they were jerks and pigs who <laughs> at least believed that the word of God was true. They may not have lived it, but they came here to establish us with the view that God would be the standard. But, you know, if we want Christianity to remain, to remain united and effective today, we need to be like Peter, and we need to make sure that we remind people that no matter what the world says, God's standards are still the standards. And if you want to be blessed, if you want to know how God's going to move in your life, it's by that standard. You are never going to move closer to God by inventing standards you think will get you there that make you comfortable. That's not going to work. It will have to be on God's standards, and those standards are easily defined in the Word of God. Now, it's important to note that that Peter clearly defined how long he'd be encouraging them. Now, look at this. I remember I told you to underline uh, in this tent, verse 13 again. Yes, I think it is right as long as I am in this tent to stir you up by reminding you. Okay, Peter said to stir them up as long as he was in this tent. In this tent. Now, in verse 14, we'll kind of get into that deeper. So let's move to verse 14. It says, Knowing that shortly I must put off what? My tent, just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. Now, the phrase, I love this, the phrase my tent, notice that. I will put off my tent, or as I put off my tent. Okay, that phrase is really, really important. Okay, because the phrase my tent was actually this brilliant metaphor that he was using about his body. The tent he was comparing to his earthly body, right? And Peter wasn't the only one that described his body as a tent, right? And remember, a lot of people were nomadic back then. This would have made sense, okay? But he wasn't the only one to do that. The apostle Paul said his body was a tent. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 1. He says, For we know that when this earthly tent we live in is taken down, that is, when we die and leave this earthly body, there's how we know it's earthly body, We will have a house in heaven, an eternal body made for us by God himself and not by human hands. We grow grow weary in our present bodies, and we long to be put 
to put on our heavenly bodies like new clothing. I'm going to ask you just real quick, how many people are good and ready to get a new body? Be honest. I love young people think you will never be where we are, but you will. You will be there. You know what I mean? I mean, it's funny, I'll be at practice sometimes, and I'll stand up and my knees sound like a three-piece band, just cracking and crunching. And because my girls are so polite, they go, ew, your time's coming. You know, every, listen, I want that new body. I'm looking forward to it, and that's what they were doing. They were looking forward to that new body. So in verse 14, put off, the phrase put off in the Greek is apostasis, and it means to get rid of something or to remove something, right? Now listen carefully. The Greek word for tent is skenua, and it means or refers to a temporary habitation, so it means to get rid of or remove, when he says put off my th- this tent or my tent, it's saying to remove a temporary has a, uh, habitation. So comparing his earthly body with a tent makes perfect sense when you think about it, right? Now, let me give you an example. How many people in here like camping? Raise your hand if you like camping. Okay. Let's see what kind of camping you like. How many people like tent camping? Raise your hand. Yeah, not many. How many people would rather camp in an RV? with a shower, and there you go. Travel trailer, raise your hand. There you go, travel trailer. How about just let's go have a campfire and stay at the hotel? How many people like camp? There you go. <laughs> if my wife was here, she'd be in the front row going, ooh, ooh, me. Last night, she goes, this is beautiful camping weather. I said, you hate camping. She goes, I meant likes it by fire. <laughs> that's, that's what a lot of people mean. That's, that, that's camping. But here's the reason people don't really get too stoked over tent camping, because tents are very temporary. They almost always snag. I don't care how careful you are to store them, they almost always snag. And even though they say they don't leak, do they leak? Yes. I remember I was in the UP fishing with my brother-in-law and had my manhood checked up there because we were in this tent. It was wide enough for two of us. And an ice storm came in May. That's why I hate the UP, right? And I woke up and the tent was coming in because the ice was weighing it down. And before long, the tent was right above our noses, right? And it was so cold in that tent, there were, there were no men. We were, like, snuggling, me and my brother-in-law. We were freezing to death. Terrible. So when people say, oh, tent camping's awesome, I'm like, yeah, if you were in the perfect weather, because I have never had good luck with it. They always snag. They always leak. They tear easily. And the worst of all, they don't have air. You know? How do you camp without air conditioning? But camping in a tent is fun, for a very short time. For two or three days, you might feel like Grizzly Adams. You got this down. You feel it. You know, you're just one with nature. And the third day, you're like, nature can have itself. I'm out. After three or four days, you are done with it if you make it that far, right? You're ready to go home. Now, this is how Peter and Paul felt about their earthly bodies, like we feel about those tents. They knew they were temporary, and they were sick of the leaks. They were sick of the snags. They were sick of the tears. They were sick of that tent, and they were ready to go home. They wanted to serve God as long as they were in that tent. They would serve God. They're like, listen, as long as this is all I got to camp in, only place I got to stay, I'll stay in this tent. But when I get a chance to go to the house, I'm throwing this thing away. That's how they felt about their earthly bodies. They knew that this is just temporary, and the earth was just a temporary dwelling, and their body was a temporary dwelling place. So they served God in those tents until they were ready to go home. 2 Corinthians 5.8. Paul says, we are of good courage, and I say, prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be what? At home with the Lord. He's saying, I'll stay in this tent as long as I have to, but as soon as I get a shot to get out of here, I'm out. 
I want to be out of this tent. And, you know, sometimes, let's be honest, how many times has anyone here actually felt like that? that how many people are guilty here when all this stuff's going crazy, just going, Lord, would you just come back? Raise your hand if you said that. I know it's selfish, but raise your hand if you said that. There's times your pastor who is a, such a godly man where I say, I'm sick of this, God, come back and get me out of here. It happens. All of us get to that point at one point or another. Paul and them lived that way. They said, I'm going to give it all I got, but man, I can't wait till he comes back. Right now, it's also important to note uh, that somehow Jesus revealed to Peter when he would die. Look at verse 14 again. Knowing that shortly I must put off my tent, just as our Lord Jesus Christ, what? Showed me. Okay, now, not many people could handle knowing when they were going to die, could they? Let me ask you, how many people would want to know when you were going to die? Yeah, not me. Two people out there saying, I would. Not me. I, uh-uh. I don't, I don't want to know when I'm going to die because here's what most people would do if we knew we were going to die, like Peter. We would probably go out and try to fill our bucket list, wouldn't we? I mean, we do things like skydiving. How many people want to do that before they die? That might be the day you die. I'm just saying. <laughs> Swimming with the dolphins. How many people want to swim with the dolphins? Okay, you're boring. Or how many people would like having a Jim's Pizza and Pizza Forum Breadsticks Marathon? Okay, I'm going to be honest. I snuck that one in there myself. That would be my bucket list, all tied into one. You know, maybe throw some fried green tomatoes in there. I like those too. But anyway, isn't it strange how my bucket list has nothing to do with anything but food? Yeah, that's how you get a body like this. Anyway, so, but Peter wasn't like that. I mean, Peter, he was going to use whatever time he had left, not to fill bucket lists, not to do things he always wanted to do or see people he always wanted to see. He knew when he was going to die, and he said, okay, that, all that is is telling me that I have three hours before my shift ends. i got to get busy before the whistle blows. i got to get busy doing what I'm hired to do before the whistle blows, and that was to serve his Savior. Now, I want every believer who hears this message to remember one very important thing. If you live like your earthly Life is all there is. It's the most important thing to you. I feel sorry for you. I do. I feel sorry for you. That's why the Apostle Paul said, if this is all it is, then we of all men are most miserable. If there's no resurrection, if, there, if Jesus isn't real, we're just miserable people. And here's why. Let's be honest. Life at its best is full of temporary relationships, death, stress, anxiety, right? You guys are going, thanks again for lifting me up, Pastor Chris. But... That's what it is. Now, there's some good things in life also, like, you know, family and friends and church and, and Jim's Pizza and for Pizza Forum Breadsticks, but you can't deny that it's still full of challenges and frustrations. It has always been full of challenges and frustrations. Just remember, the enemy strategically uses the world to distract you from three things. So when you're being distracted, remember, this is what he's trying to do, all right? First, the fact that we need Jesus to not only save us, but to guide us through our lives. You know, when people believe they feel like, oh, well, the enemy's done with me now. No, he's just getting started. Matter of fact, the enemy didn't bug me at all. Why would he? But the moment I believed, I felt like I was under attack all the time. Someone asked me one time, I'm a little nervous about being baptized. You know, it seems like the enemy really came after me. Will he come after me harder after I get baptized? And I wanted to give him a really spiritual uplifting answer, but I said, yes, he will. Because every step of discipleship you take, he's going to come after you. But let me tell you the end of the story. He's going to come after you, and God's going to come with you. So you're never going to have to face him alone. He may attack you more, but you're going to find out how powerful God is during that. The second thing they used to distract is the fact that we all have an appointment with death, and no one knows when, and he, he, the world does not want you thinking about that. 
Because if you think about that, you might, you might start thinking about where you stand for eternity if you think about death. And that's why they're, you ever see they selling every supplement in the world that's supposed to make you live longer, run faster, and they say, this guy's 74, and now he's ripped, and you can tell they superimposed a head on someone else's body, you know? And they sell you thousands of dollars worth of supplements, but you will just have a body full of supplements that will die someday. <laughs> you can't stop it. You're going to die someday, and no one knows when. The enemy wants you to forget that. The last thing he tries to distract us with, and probably the greatest thing, is he wants us to, you know, he wants us to leave our loved ones without any promise. He doesn't want us to talk about God with them. He doesn't want us to leave a legacy of love with them. He wants us to train them to be like the world. He who dies with the most toys wins. You're going to live forever. Take the supplements. That's what he wants us to do. He doesn't want us leaving our loved ones with any promises. That's how he's going to try to distract us. And Peter said, listen, he won't do that to you if you stay focused and stay on task. Now let's look at verse 15. Make sure I'm not running over here. Uh, this is about Peter's legacy, 2 Peter 1.15. He says, Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. All right, so in verse 15, Peter told his readers that when he dies, he wanted his legacy to be about God, about what he had taught. He didn't care if people remembered him. He didn't care if people remembered his name or his many adventures. That didn't mean anything to him. He wanted to make sure when he died, they remembered every word out of the word of God that he taught them. And he said, if you remember that, I'm a success. Now, doesn't the world tell you something else? If you're a success, 100 years from now, they'll be talking about you, right? 100 years from now, they'll be talking about Chris Mosley. They probably will, but it won't be anything good, right? That, it's not about me. I don't care. I agree 100%. I don't care if anyone remembers my name, but I sure hope that the word I share with people stays in their hearts and minds and they share it with their families. This is what he was telling them. Right? He just wanted them to remember everything that God had taught him. And if they all remembered about Peter and his personality and adventures, if that's all they remembered about him, then his life would have been in vain. If it would, think about it. If you leave this world and all they say, well, Chris was funny and he coached softball and he was a preacher. I'm a failure if that's what you remember about me when I go. I'm hoping that people remember what I've taught you, what the Lord has taught you through me things that I was able to show you, I'm hoping that somehow God used me to make a difference in your life. Because if he, did, if he doesn't, then my life, to be honest with you, would be worthless. And that's what he was saying here, right? One thing I don't think you remember, I've had a lot of discussions lately. People have been coming to me about inheritances and things like that. I'm not a big fan of them. I'm not saying they're wrong. I'm not a big fan of them, but I think people get too focused on them. Everything you can leave your kids will be destroyed someday. Not the memories. Those last. But the money they'll probably fight over. The properties they'll probably fight over. And everybody says, not my kids. Yeah, I've seen it. They probably will. Or at least have a rift. If you leave them a car, they'll probably sell it. A gun, they'll probably sell it or it'll rust. Anything you can leave them doesn't last forever. But the one legacy you can leave them that will last forever is a relationship with Jesus Christ or the importance of that relationship. You know what I mean? And you're not just leaving them with religion. You're not just leaving them with churchy stuff, if you're leaving them with the truth of the word of God, you're leaving them a path to have an eternity, not only with Jesus, but with you. You're dropping breadcrumbs that leads them to eternity with you. That's what's important. Every time you talk about Jesus, every time you, you know, encourage them to go to church, encourage them to study, encourage them to pray, 
you are leaving breadcrumbs that will, they can follow in your footsteps by those breadcrumbs right into the kingdom of heaven, and then you'll get to embrace them and spend eternity with them. That should be all of our legacies. You know what? I don't care if anyone leaves me anything. Anything I didn't work for, I don't deserve. And I'm probably going to leave my kids a bounty of debt, you know, someday. You know, a, a few things here and there, but not much. But I'll tell you one thing. The one thing the rich and poor alike can leave that's valuable is the truth about Jesus. Make sure that is your legacy. Right now, I'll leave you with the words of the Apostle Paul here. Because uh, the Apostle Paul made a statement I think was pretty bold to the Thessalonians uh, talking about death and the return of Christ. And it's just, these are meant to be words of comfort. So I think these would be a great way to end this. So 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. He says, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep so that you will not grieve as the rest who what? Who have no hope. Okay, this is awesome. All right. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have what? Fallen asleep in Jesus. Remember what falling asleep means to the Hebrew? Dead. They didn't like to say death or dying, or they'd like to say slumber, sleep, sleeping. He says, uh, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of our Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. What that means is the people who die before us get to be with Jesus before us. We don't get to beat them. You know what I mean? That's what it's telling us here. They get to be there for us. Verse 16. It says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. I had a buddy who was... Very, very, very charismatic. And he said, uh, you know, he came to my church one time. He said, it's a good message. I like the music and stuff. But, you know, he liked people jumping the pews and hollering and screaming and stuff like that. And he said, well, the bonus is you'll get to heaven first because the Bible says the dead in Christ will get there first. I'm like, thanks. But that's not what it means. It means that those who have passed before will get there first. Verse 17, then we who are alive and remain will be caught up. What's that word translate to? Rapture, caught up is raptura in the Latin, which is where we get the word rapture. So all you who say rapture is not in the Bible, there it is. All right. Uh, who remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds uh, to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Now here's the pivotal verse. I love this in verse 18. Verse 18, it says, therefore what? So Paul said, therefore comfort one another. Comfort one another with the fact that you're going to die. And if you die before Jesus comes back, I mean, this is, this is all about death. And he's saying, but comfort one another, because whether you die first or whether you're here till he comes to get you, if you're one of his, you're one of his, and he's going to take you home. And you know, if I had to give one last piece of advice, I think you should prepare to live godly and live confident, but you also should be prepared to die that way. Because I'm telling you one thing, I have never been more touched by any event than seeing a believer leave this world with confidence. And I got to witness that. I saw a man whose aorta had ruptured. They called us, I've shared this story with some of you, they called us to the hospital. I was a young preacher, been preaching about a year. And I get there, and the doctors had tears in their eyes. Everybody in the room had tears in their eyes, and he's rolling his head back and forth, mumbling something. And they pulled his mask off, and he kept saying, thank you, Jesus, praise God, thank you, Jesus. And then he put it back on his face. And, and with the last turn of his head, right before he died, he pulls his mask off, and he looks at his wife, and he says, honey, why are you crying? He said, I have been waiting for this day my whole life. I'm going to be with Jesus, and I'll be waiting on you there. And he put that back on his face, and he passed away. And the doctors are crying, and you know me, the rock, I was on the ground crying. 
praying. I didn't know what I'd just seen, but that was so important to me because it is important to learn how to live confidently, but only if you li- learn to live confidently and really trust in that will you learn to die confidently because, listen, there is no true death for those who believe. I'm going to go ahead and close here. I'm going to ask you, would you please bow your heads? If this is your first time, we always like to give an invitation. So while every head is bowed, if there's anyone here who's not sure where they stand or you just want prayer, I'm not going to call you up front, none of that stuff. I just want to pray for you. Just make eye contact with me. Put your head right back down. Bless those people. Bless those people. Bless those people. I'm not going to chase you down after church. And if you're listening or watching online, God knows your heart. He sees the things I don't see. We'll be praying for you. But believers, listen, if there's ever a lesson that should pump us up, it should be this one. That's why I stopped after three verses, because it, I want believers to turn into a force that is willing to live and die confidently in Christ who doesn't fear living for him and certainly doesn't fear dying for him because when people see that confidence they're going to want to know why let's pray God I thank you so much for your grace and your mercy I thank you that you had grace in me I know God that I could never have been good enough I'm still not good enough I could never be sinless I'm still not sinless I'm never going to stop making mistakes I make mistakes every day but your love was more powerful than my shortcomings and my sin. And you reached your hand down so that anyone who would believe that what Jesus did by coming and dying and rising on the third and appointed day, anyone that could believe that what he did was enough for them to have eternal life, you've promised to give it to them. It's that simple. And only a God who loves his people would make entrance into heaven so easy. So if there's someone who doesn't know you, whether it I don't know if they've been pushed aside by churches or religion or whatever it may be, a bad experience. Remove all that from their mind and remind them that you sent your son to die for them just like they are. And if they'll believe, you'll accept them just like they are. If they make that decision, I pray they contact us, God. But for those of us who are believers, let us shift our confidence, God, not in being the the boldest investor or the boldest worker, but let us be the boldest servants. Let our passion be for serving you and a willingness to live this life for you and to die for you. We want people to see we love you in our life, and we want them to see our confidence as we face death because we know, Lord, that all we're doing is trading in this body for an eternal one and leaving this place where we're aliens and going to a place where we belong. Give us a confidence to be stirred up, as Peter said, and to serve you with passion. We just pray that as we leave here, you would keep us safe. And if you don't return to take us home before we meet again, let us come together one more time and give you the praise, honor, and glory you're so worthy of. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.